Good morning, Grace. Today's scripture reading will come from the book of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, you can find the passage on page 903. And the word reads as follows. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word of the Lord is blessed. Good morning. I'm excited to be able to kick off a new sermon series today, which we will be doing for the month of June, which we do each year. As we build up to Grace Gives, the series is Glorified to Glorify God. We're spending four weeks in John 17. As we mentioned earlier, as you saw pictures earlier, Grace Gives is the final, last full week of June, June 25th to the 30th. It is a week where our entire church family partners together, and we've always said from the beginning, the the vision of Grace, Grace Gives is to saturate our community with the gospel through sharing verbally and serving tangibly. One of the things that we say every year as we talk about Grace Gives, as we promote it, is that it's not just an event, it's a way of life. Please hear this. Grace Gives is not just meant to be a week of gospel witness, it's meant to be a week of gospel witness that shapes us so that it becomes how we live every single week, every single year. And I just, if you're new to the church, if you're just trying to understand why we place such an emphasis on Grace Gives, we just want to help you get a taste of how Grace Gives has transformed our church in beautiful ways. It's transformed lives in beautiful ways. So why are we studying John 17? John 17 is the, the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the Bible. It's one of the most precious Uh, powerful, insightful passages in all the Gospels. We get a front row seat to marvel at the incredible intimacy between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. And this is the, the final prayer of Jesus before, literally right before he is arrested and beaten and, and ultimately crucified. And in this remarkable prayer, Jesus prays for himself That's what we're looking at today. Then he prays for his disciples who were there listening. And then he prays for all those who would believe through the witness of his disciples. Who is he referring to there? Us. Jesus prays for us. And so over the next four weeks, our hope is that this prayer would encourage our hearts and and even convict our hearts so that we are compelled to live lives to the glory of God 
by being on mission with God. So that's kind of the context of this series. Today, the glory of Jesus and the mission of the church. The glory of Jesus and the mission of the church. I keep using this word glory, so it's probably worth explaining. Do you know what glory is? When my son was, my youngest son was like three, maybe four, uh, he's always had, I've told you about him, he's always had a, kind of an old soul, and we'd be riding in the car, and we'd be listening to, sorry, Pastor Brady, we'd be listening to Christian radio, and there'd be songs on, some of them good, some of them not, not as great, but like, there's this one song, and it says, you, we want glory, and it says how we seek it in other places, and we'd hear it all the time, and my son was like three years old in the back, you know, I'm thinking he's looking at the you know, outside, and he's thinking about his lollipop, but he goes, Dad, what's Glory. So what are you talking about? He's like, it's in the song. Didn't you hear it? What is glory? That's a good question. It's hard to define to a three-year-old, let alone all of us. What is, what is glory, right? It's not like the word basketball. You, when I, I say basketball, you know what I mean, right? It's round. It's cylindrical, right? You balance it. It's rubber, that sort of thing. That's a basketball. What is Glory. Sometimes it's helpful to, find, to define things by giving you some illustrations and, and pointing and saying, that's kind of it. That's what it looks like. Glory is what you feel or experience when you've been watching your team all season and there's been highs and lows and they make it to the playoffs, they make it to the big game and the final minutes of the game, they win the game and you stand up and you celebrate as if you were there. They won, we won, that's Glory. Glory is what you feel when you watch, or when you play, I should say, when you play a piece at a recital or a concert, and you nailed it and everyone knows it. Glory is what you experience when you watch a sunset over the water, and the sky is so radiant with color that for a brief moment, it literally feels like all is right in the world. Glory is the satisfaction of biting into a warm donut that was doused in glaze just a few seconds earlier. Why do those kind of things resonate deep within us? What do those things have in common? They're describing different aspects of glory. Those things aren't true glory, but we, we get a taste of it, right? Glory is honor and majesty and beauty and satisfaction all wrapped up into one. Have you ever seen the movie Nacho Libre? There's this running joke in our staff that every staff meeting, I will come up with some quote from this movie because it's so important to me. Um, the main character is a priest who lives in a poor orphanage in Mexico, and he, he's kind of a lowly priest, a lowly guy, does all the cooking, but he wants, to be, he wants to be something better. He wants to be something great. He wants to be a luchador, a, a wrestler. But, and he says, I want to do it to earn money for the orphans. But at one point when he's trying to get into this and doing it secretly, he's talking to his friend and he's frustrated and he says, don't you want a taste of the glory? The answer is we all do. 
what did he want? He wanted honor. He wanted admiration. He wanted significance. He wanted to feel the satisfaction. We all want glory. Not necessarily the glory of winning a, a, a wrestling match, no, but for us, sometimes the glory is the glory of a bigger promotion or a nicer car or, or a better marriage or a, a, a fancier vacation or being the best, whatever that, in that thing is, or winning the game or a more thrilling hobby. Look, we are glory hogs. That's our problem. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you can be sure, we're, 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 we're grasping. The Bible tells us that God is truly glorious. That He alone is worthy of our honor and praise. That He alone satisfies our deepest longings. But that's not how most of us live day to day. We don't live with the primary motivation in life that, that above all else, God would be praised and treasured and delighted in. That's our problem. That's the struggle. But here's the hope. We can change. God has come. He's revealed his glory. And today, I want to invite each of us to behold the glory of Jesus and let his glory be the center of your life so that it will compel you to join his mission here on earth. Let's look at John 17, 1 to 5. Here's the first lesson we learn from these verses. Center your life on the glory of God. Look at verse 1 and verse 5 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? He just finished speaking to his disciples in John 13 to 16, and he's in, in the upper room discourse, and he tells them many things. He tells them he's about to be betrayed, and he's going to be crucified. He tells them they're going to be, they're going to abandon him. One of them's going to betray him, and, and he tells them all kinds of things, and it's, it's very weighty. But then he ends John 16 with, take heart, I have overcome the world. Now in the context of all those things he had just spoken, it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Then verse 5, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is praying to his heavenly father just like he often does. This is his last prayer session before he faces unimaginable suffering and death. And he says, the hour has come. What hour? What's he talking about? All throughout John's gospel, Jesus refers to a future event that will take place at a certain hour. And he kept saying, my hour's not yet come. My hour's not yet come. Right? John 2, he, his mom, you know, the wedding, right? They've run out of wine. And his mom says, go tell Jesus. And, and he says, what? Why do you bother me? My hour has not yet come. Then he performs the miracle. But now, that event, the hour which he had been referring to all throughout John's gospel. It's the time of Jesus' unjust yet predestined death on a cross. And notice he says, that hour has now come. It's here. This very night, within minutes, Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, tried, condemned, beaten, and within 24 hours, hanging on a cross. 
This is not sometime down the road. It's now. This is go time. This is it. Everything Jesus has said and done has been preparing for this hour. Jesus had a mission, and it was a mission that he knew all along would lead to his agonizing death. All the amazing miracles he performed, all the incredible uh, sermons that he preached, it was all building up to this hour. Look, the most important events in human history ever are beginning to happen this very weekend. And that's when Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is his only request for himself. For the rest of the chapter, he prays for disciples, he prays for us. But for himself, one singular request. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. Notice he doesn't pray for God to change his circumstances. He doesn't pray for strength to endure or wisdom to know how to face his enemies. And those are all fine things to pray for. Those are all the kinds of things we tend to pray for, aren't they? Right? I, we, we tend to pray for things when there is uncertainty. In other words, I don't know how my exam will go tomorrow, so I'm going to pray. I don't know how to deal with this hard relationship at work, so I'm going to pray. I don't, know how to, I, I don't know how to deal with the anxiety or the, or the pain or, or the struggle to forgive of this person, so I'm going to pray. But look, if you knew with certainty what would happen tomorrow, would you pray? Probably not. If you knew God had willed something to happen tomorrow, you, you would think, why pray about it? But Jesus models something completely different in prayer. For Jesus, it wasn't his uncertainty, but his certainty about the future that drove him to pray. Do you see that? Do you understand that God's sovereignty over all things didn't cause Jesus to shy away from prayer? It drove him deeper into prayer? We pray for God to conform to our agenda, typically. But Jesus prays to conform his own heart to God's agenda. We pray primarily for God to change our circumstances. God, change this, do this. That's not wrong. But look, Jesus prays primarily to draw nearer to his Father in greater intimacy. Look, do you need help with your fears, your insecurities, your struggles, your wounds? Yes. Pray for them, absolutely. But what you need at the deepest level, what I need at the deepest level is to behold the glory of Jesus and be satisfied in it. Do you need to approach prayer more like Jesus? That's why he prays, glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. He's referring to, to this, this theme throughout the Bible that if you read the Bible, you, you understand, you find that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we worship one God in three persons. And the three persons of the Trinity have been glorifying one another constantly and eternally. Did you know that? Christianity is the only faith. It's not like any other religion. Every other religion either has multiple gods or they have a singular God who's a monad. He's alone with the alone and then he creates to have to get people to do something for him. 
Christianity is the only religion, the only faith that says our God has always been in relationship within his, himself and he is constantly glorifying one another. Remember, glory means to honor, praise, adore, appreciate. And that's what God has been doing eternally. They are eternally pleased with each other within the Godhead, eternally delighting in one another, eternally honoring one another, eternally satisfied in one another. Uh, if, I don't want to sound sacrilegious, but, but my counseling professor would say, the Trinity is constantly giving each other high fives. You're the greatest. Ha <laughs> ha. No, you're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. For all their eternity, they've been like that. And you're like, that's weird. No, it's beautiful. It's selfless. That's how God has always existed. Father, Son, and Spirit glorifying one another to a degree we cannot imagine. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the eternal dance of the Trinity. No one seeking their own glory. No one demanding their own glory within the Godhead. Just the selfless giving of glory to one another. That's the way it's always been. And we need to understand this. Because God didn't create the world in us because there was some kind of void in him that he needed to fill. No, God created everything out of the overflow of his love and delight. He did not create us to get glory. He created us to share in his own glory. There's a little theology lesson, and now here's how I bring it down to earth. What does that have to do with us? It's this. Your greatest purpose in life, the very reason for your existence is this. To glorify God. The Westminster Confession, the very first question of it says this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's spot on. To join with the Trinity what, what he's already been doing for all of eternity and to offer selfless honor and adoration and delight in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here's what I do know. No matter where you are spiritually today, whether you're a Christian or not, you will glorify, you will worship someone or something. You have to. It is hardwired into your soul because you are made in the image of God. When you center your life on the glorifying God, you will get a taste of the joy and satisfaction that God experiences in himself. But if you center your life on your own glory, if you try to get glory through your job, right? I climb up the ladder. I got to be, but yeah, you know, it's nothing wrong climbing the ladder. But if that's your glory, that's the problem. If you try to get glory through success or through how you look or through some kind of status or through some kind of financial uh, opportunities or the acceptance of others, you will always be disappointed at, at, at best and miserable at worst. Because none of those things can truly satisfy. None of those things can handle being the center of your being. If you put your looks at the center of your being, it will disappoint you every time. If you put success at the center of your being, what happens when you're not successful anymore? If you see glory in anything other than God, the, 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 that thing will promise you more than it can ever deliver and it will always demand from you more than you could ever give. That's what idols do. But if you center your life on the glory of God, if you revolve everything around the glory of God and not the glory of you or the glory of me, you will live out the very purpose for your existence and you will experience a satisfaction and a joy 
you never thought possible. And that's why Jesus, even as he stares into the horrors of the cross, can say right now, right here, even in this hour of suffering, what I want most deeply is to glorify you, Father. What is at the center of your life today? Is it God or is it something else? Is it God or is it you? What glory are you seeking? Center your life on the glory of God, the only glory that truly satisfies and that is truly glorious. Lesson number two. Let the glory of the cross humble you. Up until this point, Jesus keeps saying, my hour has not yet come, but now the hour has come, the hour of his death. Jesus is communicating something we should, that should boggle our minds. And I, need to, I want to draw it out for you. He's saying, my unjust and my horrific death will not be a display of shame, but glory. I know that sounds crazy. Jesus is asking, as he enters the the hour of unimaginable suffering, as as he begins on the cross to bear the very wrath of God against our sin, dying the death we should have died, that in the awfulness of the cross, his father would do the impossible. Namely, he's saying, bring bring honor where where there is only shame. Father, honor your son in the shame of the cross. For Jesus, the cross was not a place of shame, but honor. Does that make any sense? Is the electric chair ever a place of honor? No, it's repulsive. This is the paradox of Christianity, the paradox of the gospel, the paradox of the cross. The glory of God does not follow the shame of the cross. The glory of God is displayed in the shame of the cross. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Here's what that means. Jesus glorified the Father throughout all of his life, right? His preaching, his obeying the Father's will, his miracles, his his literally bringing God down to earth, tabernacling among us. But on the cross, he glorified God the most because he gives up whatever other glory he still had. That is why the cross, though it's a symbol of, of torture, for Christians it's a symbol of beauty and love. Because there, look, there is no greater beauty than giving your beauty up to beautify someone else. There is no greater glory than to glorify someone else. I get to witness members of our church who care for someone in their family who is dying. 
and I enter into those spaces and I see this husband or wife, this, this child caring for their parent, all the physical demands, all the smells, all the sights, all the things they can't imagine they would ever have to do, all the emotional stress, all the sorrow, they become a mess in order to provide dignity, dignity to the person who's dying. And what I see, they don't see it in the moment, but what I see is the glory of it. The glory of them giving up of themselves to beautify somebody else. Jesus shows us this is the heart of God, and it's always been this, selfless love. Do you realize even for God, the way up is down? Do you realize even for God, the path to glory is the way of the cross? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Why would it be any different from us than it is for Jesus? Do you and I understand really how much Jesus endured on the cross for us? Do we have any sense of how much he emptied himself of glory so that we could share in his glory? Right? The physical agony, right? Beaten to a bloody pulp, a crown of thorns smashed on his throbbing head, nails in his hands and feet, grasping for breath. Does that seem like glory to you? All of God's wrath bearing down uh, on Jesus, all of the wrath of us glory hoggers is on Jesus, laid on the one who deserved all glory, and now he gets the wrath from us. He, he's, being, he's literally being ripped apart, body and soul. He's being condemned in God's courtroom. The Father literally turns away as Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only with spiritual eyes, we got to put on the glasses and see this the way it truly is. Can, can we see that Jesus dying for you and understanding with great gratitude in your heart and humility, he gave up his glory. He gave it all up so that he can say, here, I'm going to beautify you. You and I are the ones who are dying you and I are the ones who, who all the sights and the smells, it's like, oh, and yet Jesus says, who's up for the task? Who can help this dying person? And Jesus says, I'm the only one. What do I have to do? I know what I have to do. I have to die for them. I have to die in their place. I have to die as them. I have to give up all of my glory and be humiliated so that they might experience the glory and joy of knowing that I'll, all that I had to begin with. He gave up glory. He took God's punishment for sin so you could experience forgiveness of sin. On the cross, Jesus was putting death to death. On the cross, Jesus was proving once and for all that you can trust that living for his glory is your greatest good. If you want any proof, look what Jesus accomplished by living for the glory of God. Do you marvel at what Jesus accomplished for you at that ultimate hour? Does it humble you? If you're not a Christian, can you see why this hour, so, why, even though it's so horrific, why it was also the greatest hour in human history? That Jesus died so you can live? 
Muhammad never claimed that. Confucius never claimed that. Buddha never claimed that, right? You can claim another religion, but none of those other religious leaders ever claimed that. Jesus is the only one, if you let it sink in, that he is the only one who is willing to be condemned that you might be free. He was the only one to, to take all sorrow so he could give you all joy. That's what it means for him to be our savior. I invite you, if you've never trusted in Christ, turn from your glory honging, turn from your sin and trust Jesus as Savior today and experience his love and eternal life. Let the glory of the cross humble you. And then thirdly, let the glory of God drive you out on mission. Jesus shows us his humble submission to the Father's plan here. He's saying, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do everything you ask me to do, Father. But there's also great confidence in these verses. Verses four and five, look at those again. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. With the hour now at hand for Jesus to be crucified and risen from the dead, Jesus can now say with confidence, he has completed the work. The work is finished. There's nothing more for him to do. That's why on the cross he declared, it is finished. Amen? There's nothing more for him to do and there's nothing, anything for us to do. Everything needed to secure our salvation has been accomplished Jesus paid it all. That is spectacularly good news. Christianity is not a message of do, do, do. It's a message of done. It's done. Why do you think we go out and grace gives? We're not saying go out and go, people, you got to work really hard to earn God's love. No, that's what every other religion says. We're saying, look, we got to cut through the noise. It's already been done for you by the one who could do it all. Receive him as a gift. Christianity is, is you become a Christian by faith in Christ alone. Please hear this. As we talk to some of you from various backgrounds, we want to make sure you understand the gospel is good news because you don't do anything to earn it. You receive it as a gift. But look, now as a, as a Christian, as a church, how do we follow Jesus? How do we live for the glory of God like him? And here's his answer. We glorify God by faithfully attending to our mission of making fully devoted followers of Christ, making disciples of all nations, not to earn from God, but because we've already been accepted and loved by God. That's why our church exists. Jesus said, I finished the work you've called me to do. But, that, but look, our church has all these ministries. We support dozens of missionaries and mission organizations. It's why we do Grace Gives. Why? Because the mission is still right before us. Jesus still says, go and make disciples of all nations. Do you want to do what God created you for? Like if you, could you, if you just said, you know what? I want to live the very meaning of my existence. I want to live it out. Let me tell you one way that I have no problem saying, this is God's will for your life. I don't know who you're supposed to marry. I don't know where you're supposed to live. I don't know the job you're supposed to take. All right, I don't know that. But I do know this. You want to follow the will of God, then join hands with the body of Christ, his church, and get to work sharing verbally and serving tangibly. You can glorify, yes, you can glorify God at your job. And that was that last week's whole sermon. 
But you don't have to wonder if washing cars will glorify God. You don't have to wonder if serving kids in VBS or art camp or sports camp or drama camp or random acts of kindness in the community or putting on a big big block party or cooking food or doing prayer team or doing home improvement or going door to door. You do not have to wonder, God, is this going to bring you glory? I can tell you it will. Not because there's anything special about washing a car. It's going to get dirty again. Not because there's anything amazing about teaching a a dance camp. No, but because through these ministry tracks, we get to proclaim the gospel verbally. We get to share the message that changes hearts and changes lives and glorifies God. And we get to portray it tangibly for the world to see and say, what is that? And we get to say, it's not us, it's him. That is glorifying to God. I can tell you this, grace gives is not the only way you can glorify God, but it is a clear way you can glorify God. That's why the choir sang earlier, send us out for your glory. Now, as soon as you start talking about sharing the gospel, evangelism, right, some of us get a little bit squirmy. We're like, ah, oh, good grief. We feel embarrassed that we don't do it enough or at all. Uh, we, we, we're afraid. How will people respond? I mean, do you know what kind of job I have? Jesus reminds us of an important point here. In verses 2 and 3, we don't go out in our own authority. We don't go out with a self-confidence. We don't go out with, with, with this thought that, you know what? I got this down. I got this, God. Hey, I'm done with this. I got this now, Okay. No, we don't go out that way. Look what Jesus says in verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him, he's talking about himself, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How does Jesus bring glory to his Father? Ultimately, by his substitutionary death and victorious resurrection through which people trust in Jesus and receive eternal life. And that's why Jesus says, I'm the only one who has authority to give eternal life. Verse 3 makes a very important clarification. What is eternal life? If I ask you, what is eternal life? You probably would give the answer, it's life without end. Right? It's a time. It's a scale of time. And it is that. But it is so much more than that. What is eternal life? Verse 3, Jesus says, The essence of eternal life is an intimate knowledge of God through His Son, Jesus. To know, verse 3, when He says, To know you, the word to know is the word used for intimacy even within a marriage. To know your spouse at the deepest level. Eternal life is a relationship more than a time frame. Eternal life is a relationship more than a time frame. Do you see eternal life that way? Because if you do, it means if you're a Christian, you have eternal life right now. Which means you can know God in a deep, even the deepest, most intimate of ways right now. Isn't that encouraging? So why does he talk about this authority and eternal life right in the midst of this mission here? 
Because he tells us after finishing his glorifying work in Matthew 28, he, now, he, now he has been glorified. He's been raised from the dead. He finished the work of this hour. And what does he tell his, his disciples? He says in Matthew 28, all authority, same word, this cosmic authority, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Right? He's saying the same thing here. I have all authority to give eternal life. Therefore, you all go and make disciples. But you're the one who has the authority. I don't have any. Yeah, go and make disciples. What? I don't have authority. Go and make disciples. What does that mean? I am going through you. That's what it means. We don't need Jesus in one sliver of the Middle East for three years of a ministry reaching hundreds or thousands of people. Now we have a cosmic Jesus who fills it with his spirit so we can reach all seven billion people with the gospel. That's really exciting. The possibilities are endless. Do you need encouragement today to be on mission for Jesus? Do you need a nudge to help you get over your fears about sharing the gospel? Here it is. Here's the encouragement I have for you. Here's the nudge I have for you. You go out on mission to make disciples with the cosmic authority of Jesus himself. Our risen Savior reigns with all authority and now he's present in you you, and empowers you with everything you need. He is with you and he is for you for, for the very purpose of bringing glory to God by making disciples. Do you believe that? That our calling is to faithfully share the message and his calling is to give eternal life to all whom the Father draws. In other words, write this down, the pressure's off. Does it make sense now? Right, I'm using all these theological words. Just tell me how it is, Mark. The pressure's off. When you share the gospel, it's not your charisma that's going to win people over. It's not, it's not your confidence. It's not how you look or don't look. Only Jesus has authority to grant eternal life. We don't. We faithfully proclaim and he faithfully saves. Jesus was totally committed to his mission to the point where he was willing to lay down his life. And now he calls us to go and continue his mission and be faithful to the mission of bringing glory to God. Proclaim the gospel, make disciples. Is this going to be hard? Yup. Is this going to be costly? Yes. Is it going to be risky? You better believe it. We're going to go out into a world and share there is only one way to eternal joy and happiness and it's through Jesus and you can't live however you want and you can't do whatever you want. You have to live according to this narrow path but if you do, you will experience endless joy. That's our message. Guess how that's going to go over? But Jesus is like, just go, go. Look, I have authority. I can. The Father's already granted that some are going to go. That's what I've been looking for. I've been trying to self-actualize. I've been trying to look within to find happiness and I'm miserable and I've done all kinds of stuff to my body and I've done all kinds of stuff to people around me but it isn't helping me. What will help me? Oh, the God who created me and designed me and wired me wants to know me and love me. Yeah, that's good news. Don't you think Jesus knows that it will be hard for us? That's why he spends the rest of this chapter praying for us. The path leading to glory for Jesus was one of selfless sacrifice 
why would it be any different for us? The greatest glory is in living for the glory of God, not yourself. And yet Jesus gives us great hope here to keep going. Don't give up. Keep, keep striving. Keep resting in him. What hope does he give us? Verse 5 again. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. He says after the cross, he would once again share in the glory he had with the Father and the Spirit. Later in verse 22, we're going to get to this later. He says, the glory you've given me, I have given to them. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they may be with me to be where I am to see my glory. Who's he talking about? That's us. He's saying, one day, I want to show my disciples, I want to show all of those who believe in me the stunning, infinite glory that we have, Father, in heaven. Church, one day we are going to feel the love and acceptance of Jesus beyond our wildest imagination. One day you're going to be happier than a kid in a candy store or in an amusement park. One day you're going to get a taste of the glory, the honor, admiration, but it won't be selfish. It's going to all be God's selfless glory. One day, one day everything you lost will be restored. One day all your dreams will come true. I don't say that tritely. David said in Psalm 1611, in your presence, God, is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Whatever the best thing you can think of, God can beat it. One day you'll finally get what you've been searching for your whole life, but you can't quite articulate. You're not quite sure how, but you know there's something that you've been searching for. One day you're going to find it. One day you're going to have it. One day you're going to share in the glory of God, all because Jesus gave it up for you to share in it. That's what eternal life will be like, and it starts now. So let's live for the glory of God by being on mission for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we invite you right now to work in our hearts. We know that your word has power. That later in John 17, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So Lord, even now, work in our hearts by your word. Let it plant deep within us. Let, let your word written and spoken lead us to you, the living word, Jesus. We know the only way we are changed is as we behold you, as we take in all of you, as we remember and are humbled yet exhilarated by who you are and what you've done for me, for us. So that no matter what is in our way, no matter what we think, this is why I'm struggling. This is why I can't move forward. This is why I can't let something go. This is why I can't share. This is why I'm, yeah, Lord, whatever that thing is, may it just, may it become so 
may it get consumed by your glory. Jesus, may your glory be as the sun to us so that everything else pales in comparison. Our sin, our trials, our suffering, whatever it is, Father, right now, may the glory of Jesus shine. We know that is your will. I pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Send us out for your glory. We pray as a church who desperately needs continual revival, a continual refreshing for the work at hand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.